Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 19, Counterterrorism and Intelligence Operations. from the lens of afghanistan to take a deep dive into this topic we have today with us lucas weber hi lucas welcome to the podcast uh thanks for having me thank you very much lucas for your precious time uh, so without any delay i would like to actually take a jump into the subject and i would say prior to you know starting with the actual topic as we have a broad range of audience from the space and defense industry including the, of course the international security field so can you please tell us in on a basic terms or you know in a basic uh, meaning i would say of what is terrorism counter terrorism and why this term has gained prominence in the modern world yeah well uh terrorism simply defined is the use of threats and violence uh against a population or property to uh intimidate and coerce a government civilian population uh in furtherance of uh political and social objectives and then counter terror uh it employs a number of uh military strategies that governments uh law enforcement uh businesses non-governmental organizations research groups and intelligence agencies uh used to combat or uh eliminate or nullify uh terrorism and this uh this can t- take place in the physical world with um uh police raids uh military operations drone strikes or it can uh take place online where um Uh, these organizations the aforement uh, aforementioned groups uh counter nefarious actors uh that are using social media messaging applications the internet and uh the dark web and this also applies to uh terrorist fundraising and uh some uh a notable trend has been uh terrorist use of uh cryptocurrency as uh this space compared to the financial uh space is much less regulated and uh more easy to exploit and um although uh great power competition is kind of emerging as uh the primary focus of uh the US and the West China and Russia and the um global war on terrorism really winds down yet continues at a low level in the background there's actually uh more terrorist groups uh militant or uh, jihadist groups for instance than there was on 9/11 which kind of kicked off the global war on terror so uh terrorism is uh here to stay 
and it will continue on even though more and more uh, resources are devoted to countering China and Russia. And um, uh, this also uh, creates a risk of um, uh, insufficient attention paid to uh, malicious actors, hostile actors that could pull off um, you know, any range of uh, attacks. Excellent. I think this is a very broad term. And I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned, especially even about the terrorism financing, because in general, what happens in the space and especially I would say in the space industry, we uh, when we hear the term counterterrorism, people only relate it to the military. Uh, but they're unaware about the fact that uh, there is a whole different world related to the financing uh, than there is dark, dark web as well. So I believe this, all the elements also contribute to the counterterrorism. And just out of curiosity, you know, because uh, I have been actually following your work uh, throughout uh, so for, a, for a year or so, uh, especially reading the articles from Militant Wire. So can you also give a brief uh, overview of your journey into this field and uh, how you, you know, of course, ended up uh, you being an expert uh, in this field of counterterrorism? Yeah, well, I was um, always very interested in um, uh, throughout the war on terror in uh, jihadist groups and 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 uh, non -state, violent non state actors in particular. Um, and and uh, then I went to uh, I took an undergraduate in uh, economics, but on my free time, I found myself uh, reading uh, literature about. Um, uh, terrorist groups and the newest studies and everything. So I decided after my um, undergraduate to pursue uh, graduate studies in um, uh, focused on uh, terrorist groups. And uh, while I was doing this, I started writing for um, a number of different outlets. And uh, then two of my colleagues who we uh, exchanged ideas and uh, information, asked each other questions because we had uh, different specializations that complemented each other. Uh, one is Tom Lord, who is a uh, expert on uh, Mediterranean security, uh, partic particularly in Greece and Turkey. And the other is, um, he goes by the name War Noir, and he's a, a world-class weapons analyst. So we were able to um, come up with an idea to form our own outlet and our own uh, research network. So we started um, publishing articles by the three of us, and then uh, it kind of developed organically uh, the Militant Wire research network. And people started asking if they could submit to us. So our writing roster uh, can, it expanded very quickly. And then we um, kind of changed our approach and made it uh, an outlet where people could submit to, and we've uh, grown a worldwide uh, robust network of experts on all kinds of uh, different um, uh, areas, uh, different area experts and experts on different militant groups or, uh, you know, aspects of irregular warfare. And um, yeah, it just kind of all happened organically and almost by chance that we uh, connected with each other and came up with this idea. So that's how um, I personally got into it. And then 
met up with my co-founders and we developed Militant Wire and uh, built this really great network full of really uh, world-class researchers and, and nice people. Amazing. So I, I believe I have always believed that, you know, the college or any kind of networking is, is the kind of a best place to connect with the people and start your business. And I believe that's something that has happened with you as well. You know, you connected with your friends, uh, you shared the ideas and you started this. And I believe uh, also before, I mean, I started following Militant where I used to follow some of the websites where such kind of, you know, analysis was uh, provided. Uh, but I'm very much aware of the fact that Militant Wire really gives a good analysis about even, you know, uh, the articles which are freely available. Uh, and I see a lot of websites on the other platform. They they don't really, you know, educate the people or the civilians about this. But I'm really glad Militant Wire is doing it uh, by yeah. keeping the articles free because I believe the topic counterterrorism is something that shouldn't be only concentrated to you know, the military or the space or defense or the security people, the common people also need to understand because they can be a victim of it anytime as we were speaking yeah. about terrorism financing as well. So I'm really glad uh, you have kept those uh, articles free because I, I have been mostly reading those articles and your yeah, personal and we, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we, um we kind of, uh, and this is kind of uh, taking an aside, but what we try to do with our approach to militant wires, um, we do give like very technical analysis. However, we present it in a kind of brief uh, way, uh, simplified version. So uh, both, you know, academics and experts or uh, uh, professionals in the industry or just normal people with uh, who are interested in these things can understand. And we also um, promised ourselves when we started that um, the debate, the, the, the media debate, the public uh, discourse has become so polarized and even propagandized that a lot of what comes out of the West, where um, some of us are based, I myself am based, is... Uh, more about pushing narratives rather than uh, objectivity is not achievable, but we try to be as objective as possible. And we wanted to appeal to people globally, no matter what their uh, nationality is, their national allegiances, or um, their view on global politics. So we don't want to push a Western-centric uh uh, information on our audience and we want to be honest to our readers and uh, I think this has really gone over well and set us apart in some way yes I think the this core value you know of uh, giving the right information not alignment aligning with any kind of narrative but giving you know the right on-ground report of what is happening is very important and I believe uh, yeah, the results are in front of us. Uh, in, a, in a very short time, I think you have uh, grown to a quite an appreciable extent. Uh, I, I will also actually put up the link of Militant Wire subscription uh, below the podcast. Uh, so the audience can actually uh, subscribe to the platform as well. Uh, Thank and you. Yes, yes. 
so yeah uh, i think yeah proceeding ahead with the topic uh, i i mean we have recently seen the beginning of this decade has been kind of changed because the united states actually exited from afghanistan so from this perspective given the absence of us and nato forces in afghanistan uh, since now i think since mid 2021 i believe Uh, so can you tell us about the current status of extremist groups their conflicts activities and more importantly does the west still carry out counterterrorism operations in afghanistan okay well um if i could i'd like to give a uh, lead in i'd like to lead into this with some background and context on the uh on the islamic state kurdistan province uh just so the listeners uh, get a full understanding and then i'll lead into this question uh because i think uh the story of how uh leading up to uh the taliban's takeover and how things have changed afterwards um really should be put in this context so very quickly um the islamic state kurdistan province has its origins in uh, uh pakistan and afghanistan in the late uh in late 2014 2000 or early 2015 uh and that's when it was officially recognized as an islamic state province by the islamic state central leadership and this was you know around the time of uh the height of the caliphate in uh Iraq and Syria the physical caliphate where they controlled territory so this sent shockwaves throughout the world and it had implications for regions uh you know for uh many or multiple continents so in Asia one of the uh perhaps the most uh dangerous group right now is the Islamic State Kurdistan province and um essentially uh the Islamic State uh, Kurdistan province uh they rose a bit and then uh they declined they gained some momentum in 2016 and 2017 uh before being degraded by a series of setbacks and uh this was due to ramped up pressure from operations by the US Afghan forces and the Taliban um and as a result hundreds of uh ISKP forces were killed hundreds more were arrested and surrendered uh leadership figures were killed and their territory was ruled back but uh following uh this general rise and decline from 2015 to 2019 uh ISKP found its legs again and started resurging in the summer of 2020 and um they at this point they had previously uh held territory and they switched up their strategy and this is one they still continue to do so uh ISKP um placed less focus on seizing and holding territory or at least abandoned it altogether for the time being um and they focused their uh efforts instead on a sustained campaign of militant attacks so um uh, essentially uh, they, they were on the upswing again when the Taliban took over and um uh yes. although they were, they've been operating since 2014 2015 it was it was really um the August 21 or 2021 Kabul airport suicide bombing that brought them into global consciousness and um following the Taliban's takeover uh ISKP's targeting selection changed so instead of fighting the US the previous government and the Taliban and Pakistani forces all at once it 
it started focusing solely on the Taliban in Afghanistan. It still operates to a much lower extent in Pakistan. So what happened here is um, the Taliban had to go from being a guerrilla insurgency to a government. And when you're a government, you have to develop uh, you have to develop a capable security apparatus, a military, a police force, and uh, counterterrorism falls into this. So ISKP was able to take advantage of this really um, uh, this turmoil, this rough transition that the Taliban um, uh, was undergoing. And uh, during this time, they were able to launch a lot of attacks targeting minority communities, vulnerable ones, Taliban forces. They uh, even launched cross-border rocket attacks into Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. They hit the Pakistani uh, Pakistan embassy, the Russian embassy. They targeted Chinese nationals at a hotel in the capital, and they hit the Taliban's foreign ministry while a Chinese delegation was due to uh, meet the ta uh, Taliban representatives. But um, what this, this kind of uh, inability of the Taliban to uh, get ISKP, uh, ISKP under control seems to have, in recent months, uh, they've improved their counterterrorism capabilities, their spy uh, efforts, and they've really degraded ISKP and this is um, observable in the decline of their attacks and the decline in their uh, media or propaganda output. However, uh, periods of silence or inactivity by ISKP often uh, do not bode well, and uh, uh, they often break these silences with uh, major attacks. And as to the question of whether uh, the Americans still uh, conduct operations in Afghanistan, they don't have um, official uh, diplomatic relations with uh, the Taliban as they don't recognize them as a legitimate government yet. However, uh, U.S. killed al-Qaeda's leader in uh, the capital city uh, of Afghanistan uh, with an airstrike. So uh, it's possible that there is also uh, some uh, intelligence sharing going on on back channels or something of this sort. It's hard to tell at this moment. All right. Yeah, I think these are very interesting insight. Most of this, I think, events, even I didn't know the attack on Pakistan embassy, the kidnapping of uh, Chinese uh, personnel. And I believe uh, from this perspective, I mean, I have just read a few of the articles and uh, from my experience of following this topic, uh, like Taliban has been historically groomed by the Pakistani agencies, uh, but a significant drift has been created, uh, I believe, uh, since the U.S. exit between the two parties. So for, from your perspective, do you think this landscape of conflict has been an opportunity that is used when, as an opportunity, I would say, by ISKP? Yes, well, uh, these, uh, ISKP has... Uh, look to exploit any kind of rift or instability that arises in the region. And um, I think the probably uh, the biggest winner out of this is actually Taliban, the, Tal the Afghan Taliban's al al ally, uh, 
the uh, Pakistani Taliban or the TTP. And um, these groups have been able to use uh, Afghan territory under um, under the control of the Taliban to uh, procure weapons, increase their their uh, firepower and arsenal, to uh, recruit, train, plan operations, and receive uh, funding. So this has actually added strategic depth to the Pakistani Taliban. And then back to the Islamic State Khorasan province, um, I think the attack on uh, Pakistan's embassy in Kabul was uh, meant to undermine uh, or further undermine relations between the Taliban and uh, Pakistan. And th they have actually um, overtly stated this approach. They explicitly said that the goal in attacking, for instance, um, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, targeting Chinese nationals, uh, the Russian and Pakistani embassies were to undermine the Taliban's foreign relations because the Taliban's um, facing a uh, quite severe humanitarian and economic uh, crisis, and they're looking for foreign investment and aid. And uh, these attacks serve to kind of bring pressure down upon the Taliban from these governments, including Pakistan. And um, they've also, uh, ISKP has threatened economic projects in the region, for instance, in Uzbekistan, uh, through uh, a railway that's uh, planned to run through uh, from Uzbekistan through Afghanistan into Pakistan. And um, they have also threatened Chinese interest and promised to attack inside China, uh, attack their cities from Afghan soil. And the, the Taliban's really looking to China for um, it, foreign investment and all kinds of other uh, help to uh, ameliorate uh, the issues they're facing. So this is the kind of the strategy to make uh, ISKP strategy to make uh, the Taliban look incompetent and create a chill effect for foreign investment. And even uh, they've been threatening humanitarian organizations. So they're trying to keep the uh, Taliban in a weak uh, state and prevent as much as they can foreign investment and humanitarian aid getting to the country. So it, it creates hostilities uh, hostile sentiment amongst the population against the ruling government. All right. I, I believe uh, you have covered most of this part, uh, which I was going to actually ask a question furthermore. But I think, yeah, uh, you covered uh, this part as well uh, about how it operates and the kind of different branches uh, that he ha it has. Uh, so... Uh, Can to extend on the same lines, uh, are the Taliban and ISKP well-equipped to carry out espionage activities? I'm asking this question not only in the context of, you know, the general information, uh, but I, I saw that uh, lately uh, Wall Street Journal has released a small documentary on Wagner Group. Uh, so in general... Can you also include a perspective a little bit uh, about how the private military companies might even become a part of uh, what is happening in Afghanistan? Okay, well, um, first of all, I'll, I'll touch on the uh, espionage activities. 
And this is something quite uh, interesting because uh, my uh, colleague, uh, Ricardo Valle from uh, the Curacao Diary, he um, and I have been working uh, and writing about uh, internal Islamic State Khorasan province communications. And uh, starting last summer, there's really an upsurge in warnings put out by um, official Islamic State Khorasan province channels that they were they were being infiltrated by uh, Taliban operatives and even uh, Iranian and other foreign uh, operatives. So in one case, um, I was writing an article on uh, or a bio, like a kind of profile on this up and coming uh, Tajik uh, ideologue. And uh, I was really interested in his activities because he was rising fast and he was really becoming influential. And then one day I checked one of the channels and they announced that he was killed. And this was a channel he was he was an administrator in a moderator and he'd always be in there speaking uh, daily and talking about his daily activities. And so they posted that he had actually been killed um, and how this happened was a Taliban mole infiltrated their network and gave away his uh, position to the Taliban and the Taliban subsequently raided his location, killed him and a number of other fighters. So um, after this, um, ISKP centralized their branch uh, propaganda operations and implemented a warning system. They streamlined the system so that as soon as something like this happens, they put out a warning or if a um, uh, suspected Taliban or other foreign uh, actor trying to undermine or uh, target uh, ISKP's fighters who are uh, talking online, uh, they can put out warnings immediately. Uh, they say, do not interact with such and such account. And after the Tajik um, uh, uh, ideologue was killed, for instance, they started putting out wanted posters and even a booklet uh, describing uh, who this guy was. And interestingly, they said he was Russian. Um, and the, uh, the, the ISKP also, you know, they have intelligence uh, departments and agents uh, and commanders and things like that. So they, they collect intelligence on the Taliban. They try to infiltrate and um, draw Taliban members away back into its ranks. Uh, but the Taliban uh, obviously has a much more robust apparatus it can draw upon. And um, I think there is always the possibility that uh, private military contractors could uh, come in come in or be called upon by um, the Taliban if uh, things get too out of control or even if they go to war with one of their neighbors. Uh, we saw the um, the hostilities with Iran, for instance. There's tense relations with uh, Tajikistan and Pakistan. So that is a, a possibility. And Russia does have um, growing ties with, uh, you know, the new ruling party in Afghanistan. Um, so this is always a possibility and something to keep an eye out for. Interesting. I think one of the very important point you mentioned was about the propaganda. And 
so can uh, I, I was just curious uh, on the same lines. So can you tell us how ISKP and Taliban are engaged in narrative warfare? Simultaneously, how other nations are using these narratives to push their respective agendas in Afghanistan? Because I believe right now the two countries that we see flashing in Afghanistan are China and India. So yeah, please proceed ahead. Okay, well, uh, I'll talk a little bit about um, uh, ISKP's uh, media apparatus because um, they are unique as they are the only branch that has a sub-IS central uh, media propaganda outlet. And um, ISKP has uh, underwent a process of regionalization and internationalization in its messaging since the Taliban takeover. And part of this is to gain advantages over the Taliban by, um, uh, well, they produce languages now, uh, they produce propaganda now in more languages than any other branch since um, the height of the Islamic State uh, caliphate in uh, Iraq and Syria. And uh, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to target um, communities in Asia uh, or in uh, India, Central Asia, South Asia, and they've even started producing magazines in Arabic to, uh, to uh, build support and recruit from or spread their message to or uh, gain uh, fundraising uh, money from uh, uh, people uh, beyond the actual conflict theater. And this seems to have worked as um, uh, we are seeing uh, a fair amount of uh, Tajik, Uzbek, and Indian fighters and uh, fighters of other na uh, nationalities uh, coming and joining ISKP. All right. So... I believe that my next question is actually again related to the narrative and communication, uh, but from a technology perspective. Mm -hmm. So like advanced communication technology, such as social media, of course, has given more access to terror groups. Uh, I mean, especially to cast a wide influence globally in a very short span of time. Yeah. So can you please tell us how open source intelligence practice has become important and why the government should invest in educating the agencies about open source intelligence? Um, I think, uh, for instance, um, when we look at the Islamic State, they have a, uh, a doctrine which was developed early after um, the caliphate was announced, and this is kind of uh, cyber jihad or media jihad. And what they try to purvey is that um, those who help spread the narratives and the messages of the Islamic State are as just or every bit as important as the fighters on the front line. And they also um, there was a book written on the Islamic State that I recommend. Uh, it's called the Digital Caliphate, and this kind of goes into how important, uh, for instance, um, social media, messaging applications, the internet, the dark web, uh, all of these things are to, even ar archival sites, are to um, the Islamic State's uh, global media campaign. And uh, interestingly, uh, 
a new unprecedented coalition uh, of non-official but pro-Islamic state uh, media outlets have emerged and they uh, all came together under one umbrella and streamlined their operations and now they're pumping out even more propaganda in way more language than the Islamic State uh, Central is. And this is a massive development, and this is something that you would miss if you are not um, participating in OSINT activities and looking around. And um, also, it's important to um, uh, social media companies. So I've, I've spoken to uh, some big uh, social media companies, and they're very concerned about um, uh, their efforts to counter Islamic State or any right-wing terrorists or any um, ideology, whatever flavor, on their platforms. And even though they have full teams for it, these groups continue to figure out how to uh, evade censorship. So um, I think that we need uh, to be able to understand how to um, employ OSINT techniques, and we should encourage people to learn these skills, and we should invest in these skills, because you never know uh, where uh, the attack planning is going to take place. It could be in one of these channels, and we have seen, for instance, in our own monitoring where um, there's chatter about an upcoming attack and then it happens. So it could even save lives in many instances. And um, I think the vast majority of intelligence that even governments use uh, comes from publicly available information. And for instance, if we look at the Ukraine war, there's never been a war in history where uh, you could see footage of essentially every square meter of this massive front line that has opened up. And this is unprecedented and unprecedented. And now uh, the uh, the Russian government and the Ukrainian government and NATO governments, they're looking at this footage to see how their tactics went and uh, you know other aspects, uh, things they can exploit, weaknesses, what's working, what's not how it actually happened in granular detail. So there's just the uh, countless reasons why it's so important, especially today where, you know, uh, access to information is unprecedented and there's so much to sort through. We need more people doing it. Excellent. I think one of the uh, points that you mentioned was about educating the people. And I believe it is very important that uh, the agencies, even the government agencies, the university want to educate the civilians too. Uh, maybe, you know, through the medium of uh, schools or colleges about open source intelligence, because I think it really has become a, an integral part of our life where, uh, I mean, things are so open that an extremist can literally, you know, gel in, in a civil life and possibly even cause an havoc to some of the critical systems of the government too. So, yeah, looking beyond the acquisition of traditional weapons by uh, extremist or terror groups, I have observed in the past that uh, Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, uh, which, is, which was prominently actually operating in Sri Lanka 
and uh, other parts of uh, India. And that terror group had actually hacked the satellite of uh, a company, American company called as Intelsat. And coming from the space industry, I'm worried that the rapid commercialization and privatization of space technology might trigger events where satellite tech, you know, is easily acquired by terror groups in the future. I mean, there have been instances uh, even during the exit of United States from Afghanistan. So Iran used that as an opportunity to target the US base in Iraq. And they were able to target by procuring commercial satellite imagery. I mean, so this has come to a point where a person like even I can, you know, possibly purchase a satellite imagery today and target something and become a national threat. So, I mean, this situation can highly destabilize, you know, uh, government operations to a larger extent. So what are your thoughts on this evolving landscape of high quality weapon technology acquisition by terror groups? And is Taliban and ISKP already involved in acquiring such weapons? Well, um, the Islamic State, for instance, the uh, cyber jihad and the media jihad I mentioned earlier, that's not just about uh, propaganda. Uh, the Islamic State has a uh, organ in their part of their organizational culture is uh, hacking. And so they formed various official hacking teams and unofficial hacking teams. And um, it is possible that um, they could. Um, you know, hack into, uh, uh, you know, space tech, uh, space uh, infrastructure. Uh, it's not my expertise, but uh, they've hacked uh, universities, government websites, all kinds of things before. I maybe perhaps even crypto exchanges um, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, and so I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm not sure what the Taliban status is, um, but perhaps the uh, increase in um, or the uh, improvement in counterterrorism that we see from them as of late, uh, maybe they're they're receiving targeting information from, uh, you know, uh, uh, aligned countries or countries they're pursuing relations with. And also uh, in terms of uh, uh, technology transfers, um, we see that uh, when conflicts break out, for instance, uh, in Afghan or in uh, um, in Ukraine, uh, the use of civilian drones has, uh, uh, like uh, weaponized civilian drones, has become widespread. And then I read a report recently where um, one of the major Mexican cartels uh, used a weaponized drone for the first time. And so we, we these these groups are learning organizations. So um, if may, perhaps if one of them uh, figures out how to do it, others will as well in terms of uh, hacking space uh, infrastructure or even satellite. Yes. Like, thank you very much for these insights. I, I think I, I was on completely unaware about the fact that a Mexican cartel actually, uh, you know, used a weaponized drone uh, so, I mean, things are already going out of the hand. Uh, but yeah, let's hope that uh, the government agencies are able to regulate some things, not in terms of, you know, commercialization, but at least kind of lay down a plan where we can possibly reduce this kind of acquisition by the terror groups. 
And we even see, yeah. um, for instance, reports of uh, the Wagner Group, which is a semi-state organization with um, a record of uh, uh, war crimes, essentially, um, they have been reported to be using Chinese uh, DJI drones, and they have whole teams devoted to DJI systems. So uh, this is something to note as well, that paramilitary groups um, who could go rogue after the war, who knows, or even during the war, given uh, the current um, tensions between Wagner and the Rus uh, the Russian MOD. So uh, yeah, there's there's dangers of uh, these kind of uh, shadowy PMCs and terror groups getting a hold of uh, all kinds of advanced weaponry. Yes, I, I agree with you about this, actually. And given the current uh, fluctuations in Pakistan's political and economic landscape, do you think Taliban might keep a close eye on territorial gains from Pakistan? And how will ISKP will react to such situations from your perspective? Um, it is hard to say because um, uh, the Taliban, you know, they're having they're having a lot of troubles in their borderlands. Um, I just wrote an article for uh, Nikkei Asia, and um, I was looking at what's going on uh, in on their Central Asian border. You know, they're they're uh, fighting with Iran sporadically on that border, and uh, uh, they're having you know increasing problems with uh pakistan on the border so um yeah they're going to be hyper vigilant about what goes on there and the islamic state Khorasan province they're looking to exploit any um rift or any kind of chaos that would give their uh organization the opportunity to undermine undermine the taliban or uh maybe drag them into or uh provoke them uh uh, into some kind of conflict with their neighbors. So there's there's always this chance because uh, the invasion of uh, Afghanistan by a foreign power would create a lot of chaos and, you know, a lot of power vacuums and uh, undergoverned areas for them to exploit. So, yeah, these are all possibilities for sure. Okay. Yeah, thank you for these insights, actually. Uh, and I believe we are already uh, nearing the end of the episode. So finally, what message would you like to give to the students and research scholars stepping into the field of counterterrorism, peace and conflict studies? Well, uh, I would recommend, uh, for instance, reaching out to, uh, because of, uh, you know, the importance of the internet as we... Um, as we spoke about earlier, you can uh, learn so much about the profession online, about uh, OSINT uh, techniques online, and um, also form, you know, form, uh, uh, do, do a lot of networking with uh, people you admire or people who have proven track records in the field that you uh, wish to pursue. And uh, most of the time, they'll be nice and respond to you with with tips. I also recommend um, uh, publishing early, whether it's with, uh, you can aim for uh, prominent publications or even just small publications, but the more you work with uh, editors, uh, the more 
uh, season do you become? And I also uh, recommend when you're actually doing the research, uh, what you want to do is you want to get a good understanding of the geographical area, the ethnic makeup, and the linguistic makeup of the area, that, uh, and then the group you're looking at, um, focus on their history. So uh, I really stress that you you want a, a vast historical knowledge of groups you study because it can help you forecast the future. And another thing is find out how to gain access to, um, uh, for instance, uh, and be careful in doing so. You, you don't want to get flagged and have your house raided or anything, but find out how to yes. um, gain access to um, channels on, you know, Telegram or whatever, so that you can watch how these groups um, uh, talk to each other, how they interact, and also read the uh, propaganda that they put out um, if you have the stomach for it, because it can be uh, quite ghoulish and gross at times, but you want to understand uh, what they think, how they perceive themselves, and what they're saying their intent is going to be. Because um, it just because uh, this applies to looking at state actors, um, uh, polarizing ones such as Putin, um, just because you may hate him. Uh, listen to what he says and try to understand what he's thinking. Even if it's propaganda, you can start to understand his tendencies as a leader. Or uh, if you're looking at terrorist groups, then um, you can really uh, understand the discourse, like get deeply, uh, uh, get a deep understanding of their discourse, their organizational culture, their internal communications. So yeah, I... Uh, I, I recommend this and a uh, good text for the Islamic state actually uh, to understand their doctrine, their early and evolving doctrine is the ISIS reader. And this is um, uh, written by uh, Ingram, Whiteside and Winter. And um, it, it is the English translation of the most important um, uh, statements put out by the Islamic state movement throughout its history. And that's that's my recommendation if you're looking at the Islamic State. Thank you very much, Lucas. Uh, I believe uh, you have given a real and extended uh, message to the young generation stepping into this field. And I hope uh, the audience really loves this podcast. As I as I believe we we came across several points which which potentially can be made into an episode maybe in the future as yep. the developments proceed ahead. So yeah, thank you again uh, very much for your time on the podcast. And yep. uh, I'll, I'll be also for the audience, uh, this is a message that I'll be putting up the link to Militant Wire uh, in the description section. So yep. you can actually either, you can choose whether which subscription you want. I'll be directly putting up the subscription link and you can read the publication as well. So I'll be putting up the social media links as well of Militant Wire so that you can access their... Uh, uh, channels uh, directly through the description section thank you yep. very much and uh, and uh, any uh, any listeners feel free to reach out to me if you have any further questions i i like to interact with uh with all kinds of people so i'd be glad yes, to speak yes. yeah definitely yeah I'll, I'll i'll put up the contact details so not an issue at all yeah uh, okay yeah yeah thanks for having me
I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.